And the questions and answers. Very good. The first day, there's not that many questions, but nevertheless, I could spin these out for these two or three hours. <laughs> no, I won't. I'll be good. There's this one over here. Dear Ajahn Brahm, all of us get sick one day. I hope it's not the same day. <laughs> when one of our family members gets sick and we've done all we can, we, all we can to help, e.g. find doctors, cook, clean, let them live with us, buy medicines, etc., etc., if their life choices and actions lead to more suffering, e.g. low iron levels, and they won't supplement it, and it begins to affect our own lives, what do we do? When can we let this person go? Is it our karma and we must give up our own lives to help them? Thank you. That is a, a tough call. depends actually who they are. If that's your mother or your father, you know, we have kind of in Buddhism, special responsibilities for our parents. And even if you don't like them, nevertheless, you're, they're still your mum and dad. And so we have those special responsibilities for them. I'm not sure how many of you remembered a poem which I printed, which was in Opening the Door of Your Heart about how to look after uh, your own mother. I don't know exactly, I can't remember it word for word, but it was something like, you know, when you have a mother and she gets sick, even if she keeps on asking you and asking you and asking you for things, always be kind and give things for, to her, whatever she needs, because the time will come when she can ask no more and she will die. It was a beautiful poem, but the most amazing thing about it was the author. The author was a gentleman called Adolf Hitler. When I read that, it kind of shocked me that even someone like an Adolf Hitler had this beautiful concern for his mother. If he could have that, can't you? If it's a mother or father, you try and do your very best. And it's inspiring. Of course, you are all limited. Because these days, we have busyness. We have monasteries to run and look after things, our teachings to do. And your other businesses to run, other members of your family need you. And sometimes your parents in a different state or different country, on the other side of the world. So you try and do your very best, but you have a limitation to, to that. And if you can't help them, then at the very least, we can always do in Buddhism just giving loving-kindness. And that loving-kindness actually does help. Because I teach mostly in the West and here in Australia, it's sometimes hard to convince people that all these ancient traditions actually work. They're not just superstition. 
And that's one of the reasons why when I do a loving-kindness meditation at the end of a retreat, when people has been meditating for six or seven, eight, nine days, by that time their meditation should be reasonably um, strong. And I ask them to spread loving-kindness, you know, first of all to a little kitten, an imaginary one, and then build it up until it's somebody who really needs it. And when you can give it to someone who really needs it, in the old days when I started doing this, I would actually look at the clock and remember the time. The reason I did that because afterwards, when the meditation was finished, I would tell people, we spread that loving kindness, especially to that one person in your life who really needs it, at that particular time. When you go home, the retreat's almost ended, give them a call, wherever they are in the world. And just do small talk, first of all. And then say, this afternoon, at, say, 3.10 p.m., what were you doing? The reason I don't do that anymore because the evening after the retreat had finished, I started getting all these calls. Ajahn Brahm, it worked! I asked my old auntie who's really sick, she said, oh, it's amazing, I was thinking you at that time. Your old, your old um, father, yeah, I was thinking you at that time. You do actually make a connection. It does actually work. So that's one thing you can do to your loved ones, if they can be the, even the other side of the world. Just spread that loving kindness towards them. You may not be able to get there personally, but certainly your mind can cross those gaps so easily. So, but in the end, I mean, one of the people who really respected me a lot, actually, I don't know if he, how much he respected me, but he cared for me, certainly. And that was, and he came to visit me when I was very sick once. And that gentleman was Ajahn Chah. I was really sick with uh, scrub typhus in Ubon Hospital. And he came up to me, he didn't have much time, but at least he said something to me. He said, Brahma Wangsa, you'll either get better or you'll die. And then he left. <laughs> Problem is, I just couldn't argue with that. I felt kind of frustrated. What he said was so true, but his bedside manner could be much better. <laughs> but that's true, I mean, we all get sick one day. You'll either get better or you'll die, it won't last. And that's stranger, that's quite reassuring. You don't have to put up with pain forever. It soon goes. And that's one nice thing to know, but we, you try and help them, do doctors, but in the end it's their choice what they want to do. I'll never force any monk or nun. Try and help out as much as possible. But in the end, it is your journey, your responsibility, and try and do the best possible. One of our rules, it's not rules but advice, is people, uh, it's in the Buddha said, if you are sick, 
you know, we have responsibilities as monks to look after other sick monks. And we also, if I am sick, I have a responsibility to tell the people looking after me exactly how I feel. Actually, to be honest with my symptoms and honest with what I need. Because one of the terrible things is people are just so willing to help you, but they don't know what you need or what you want. And if you can get that honesty with the people who are looking after you, they don't waste time giving you stuff you don't really need. That was one of my problems years ago. I don't think there was any great sicknesses around at the time, but when I was giving a talk, I coughed. I saw a few people go out. This was in Perth. And they came back and after the talk, they presented me with all these medications. The allopathy, what you get from the usual doctors, Chinese medicine, homeopathy, herbal medicines. I had a whole lot, because everyone said, this is work, this, this worked for me, this worked for me. And I promised I would take some of it. Because that's what you do. Here, Ajahn Brahm, please, I went to a lot of problems getting this, please take some. Okay. Then I was really sick. <laughs> too, much, too much medications. But people are just so kind, and sometimes their kindness is worth getting sick sometimes. I say that you know, with sincerity. But anyway, it's suffering low iron levels, won't supplement. You really have to try and convince them. So if they don't want to do it, you can't make them do it. It may be your old um, mother and I don't remember my mother when she had Alzheimer's. I just wanted to spend a little bit of time with her, caring for her. And the doctor said, this is the little medicine she has to take every day. I didn't know what it was. Can you make sure she eats it or uh, consumes it because she doesn't like the medicine? So I put some in, I think, whatever her lunch was that day. And you know, she was going through her lunch and when she came to the medicine, she threw it out. So when she wasn't looking, I threw it back in again. <laughs> it's out of kindness, but you know, she kept on noticing it. <laughs> she get out. You know what it's like, you're trying your very best. But in the end, the, the person's maybe at the end of their life, they're not going to live that much longer. And you know, their happiness and comfort is important. So in the end, she, she threw it out and I couldn't make her put it back in again. Didn't try anymore. So a lot of times, let people be sick in their own way. You try and help and care, but in the end, you have to take responsibility for your own health and long life. Does that make sense to you? You try and help your old father or old mum, but in the end, it's up to her. Can you please say a few words about sense restraint, how to practice its benefits and how it relates to kindfulness? Ah, oh, yeah. Sense restraint is you know, not talking, not listening, even to me. <laughs> restraint the ears. 
and life becomes so much more peaceful. So there's many of the senses, just the sense inputs you have. You know, people just turning on the internet. They're not really just something they need to do. It's just like something to stimulate your senses. And it's tough doing sense restraint. I don't know how many times you have to go into shopping malls, but after you've been here for a week or two weeks, or those people on retreats, you go into shopping centers, and they're crazy places. There's always background music, there's smells, and the, the, uh, the, the vision, everything is just very strong colors. And it just jars your senses. If you're used to it, you don't really notice it so much. And that is why I got one of our monks. When he came here for a, a retreat, for the range retreat, as a lay person. Sorry. <coughs> That's just a little bit of hay fever. I am taking medication, so don't go to the shop and get any more. <laughs> so he went, and so he told me in one of his interviews, his meditation was going nowhere. And he was just as restless as when he first came. And that was when I used one of the tricks. I said, oh, okay, if the meditation's going no good, can you please go and get something for me? from the, uh, the shops, from one of the shopping malls. <coughs> I forget what it was. I didn't really need it, but I sent him off to get it. He was very happy doing that. And when he came back, he said, I went into that shopping centre. It's a crazy place. I don't know why anyone goes there. It's just so noisy and disturbing. And I said to him, mission accomplished. I didn't really need what you got there. I needed you to go there used to live in places like that. Now you realize you've got so quiet with the little sense restraint you've been doing, you just can start to notice how harsh all those sensory stimulations are in a shopping center. It's one of the things you notice here, just being here just for a few days. The nature around is very beautiful, but it doesn't stimulate you. Not the same way as like a movie or like the colors in a shopping center or the sounds you hear everywhere, even in elevators, even in airports. It's very hard to get silence. I think you can understand what sense restraint is. You choose not to listen. You choose not to look. You choose not to entertain your mind with all these, I call them false entertainments. You get back into the real world. That's also why when the retreat finishes, a lot of times people say they're going back to the real world once the retreat finishes. I says, no you're not. You were in the real world in Jada Grove. This is far more real than when you go out there to where you live and work. 
this here, this sense restraint, some sense restraint. You don't wear perfumes. I don't dye my hair. I don't have any. <laughs> this is how you look. That's kind of real. So all of the, how you practice sense restraint is close your eyes as much as you can. Close your ears. A lot of times you don't need to listen to things. An example of that, a few times, maybe because the old scientist inside of me, you want to experiment. What I teach you, I have to make sure it actually works. So I try it for myself. So I remember just once arriving uh, in Bangkok airport, you know, in Suwanabumi. And uh, they asked me just, there's another person they're going to pick up, they're arriving in an hour's time. What do you want to do? And I said, I'll just meditate where I am. They said, but it's really noisy. I said, yeah. But it doesn't matter, I'd meditate there anyway. So what I do to sense restraint for noise, I just use my imagination. Imagine a bubble around me. And in that bubble, that's my space, that's my area, and I don't need to listen or perceive anything outside my own bubble. And I've done that long enough now, you can do that quite easily. So you can just sit here, and you can kind of hear sound, but you don't listen to it. You know it's happening, but you don't try and figure out what's, what's being said or what it means. It makes life much more peaceful. It's a great way of sense restraint. And the other times, you don't need to look around all over the place. Just keep your mind just uh, on the floor, two meters in front of you, or body length in front of you. That's how I do walking meditation. We have these walking meditation rooms. Have you used them yet? Hopefully you have. You can see the carpet in there, it's yoga mats. What colour are they? Red. The reason I put red carpets in there is trying to encourage you to use them. They're nice and soft and it's VIP. Because when you start to do the walking meditation, instead of just sitting down and getting your legs and back more and more sore, you do the walking meditation and your body is well exercised. And when you do walking meditation, you start walking at one end and then you put your attention to a body length in front of you, two meters, 1.8 meters, that doesn't matter about, roughly a body length in front of you. And you keep your eyes there, you don't look to the left or the right. And you don't listen to anything. You just feel the sensations on your feet as they're walking. And I remember just even from the early days of meditating. The place I used to do walking meditation when I first ordained in Bangkok was in the main hall. You know, in Watsaket, middle of Bangkok. And in that hall, I don't know why people feel that main halls need a grandfather clock, but there was one in there which would chime every quarter of an hour, like 
Big Ben in London. Ding dong, ding dong, ding dong, ding dong. So you'd think that'd be terrible for your meditation. It didn't really matter because I heard it, but I never listened for it. In other words, you can hear the sound. You never allowed it to resonate in your mind. Ding, and it was gone. You know, that's, I never mentioned that when you hear the sound of people banging the doors. Sometimes they bang a door, bang! But the sound doesn't end there, does it? Who was that? Why did they do that? It's really early in the morning. Ajahn Brahma said this so many times, you shouldn't bang the door. I don't know why they do that. We should get their name. I'm going to tell Ajahn Brahma, we're going to have a blacklist. So put all the door bangers in the same cottage. And I tell them, that's sometimes how people think. The door banging stopped a long time ago. But it resonates in like echoes in your mind with the negativity. If there is any disturbance, it's there, it's happened. Then let it go, let it disappear, don't even think about it. And the silence comes back so quickly. That's actually how you restrain your senses. And that way, after a while, you don't get excited. We have our eight precepts here. I never actually give them. I expect you by now to know them and practice them. Which basically means sense restraint. You're not looking at entertainment. None of you brought your guitar here. Or I don't know what else you entertain yourself with. So you keep all our senses just nice and subdued. And then what happens when your those type of senses get subdued, the other senses get far more alive and awake. You've heard me say this before, that sometimes you um, restrain your senses and you realize that senses are restrained because then you start to see beauty in little things like the bamboo floor. I don't know how many times I've sat here in this very position and after meditating opened my eyes and even though I've seen this bamboo floor for years just really appreciate how beautiful it is. It's like when you subdue one sense happiness a much better happiness comes up what I call the powerful mindfulness happinesses. That doesn't need to be subdued. That is actually what happens when the gross sense happinesses get subdued. Other happiness takes its place. Much more beautiful happinesses. And that's one of the most important ways of practicing sense happiness. Sense restraint, sorry. When the gross restraints, the gross sensory impingements are subdued, it feels happier, you're more peaceful. You see other beauty in this world, much more conducive to peace and freedom. There's benefits in sense restraints. If there weren't, it wouldn't be worth doing. Anyway, 
Walking meditation is great. When you're sitting meditation, you've got your eyes closed. That's why we love doing the... Some people do um, sitting meditation with eyes open. I can't see the point in that. Because, you know, you always get more and more disturbed. It's nice to do it just with your eyes closed. So you're like just in emptiness. You're like in a cave. You're like the five senses just chill out and disappear. Then the sixth sense, the mind, can manifest. Next question over here. How do you sustain, maintain joy, peace and calm when you see death and dying every day? When you suffering in life every day? You don't have to suffer in life every day. Suffering in life every day is a bad choice. I say that because you have a choice. Do you want to suffer every day? One of the reasons people suffer every day, they see maybe death and dying every day. Is that all you see every day? Are you some kind of mortuary attendant? Is that your job? And one of the things which I did as a young monk was to go and see autopsies. And so you saw death. You were with people who were dying. I don't know how many people you've been with in their last moments. Are they bad moments? Do you really know what it's like to be with someone who's dying? How much experience have you had with that? Sometimes being with people who are dying can be some of the most inspiring moments. And they say goodbye to everybody. And everybody gives them permission to die. So there's no reaction. We know they're going to die, we miss them, yes. But we realize that this is inevitable part of life. So we let it happen. It can become one of the most beautiful times. A time if you happen to be there with someone who's dying and be with them, it does become inspiring. I don't know whether I told this story somewhere recently about this man who was really sick. He was an Englishman, a Lancashire man, very old by now. He had was smoking all his life. So he had lung cancer. He went into one of the first hospices here in Perth. Then I went to go and see him. I'm glad I saw him the first day or two because, you know, in hospices, you go in there to die. Like, you know, you go in, but you only go out in a box. But not him. I love telling this story because he went in there the first evening when he was in the hospice. The nurse asked him, what do you want for dinner this evening? Because they had you know, whatever he wanted to eat. It was you know, your last few days on earth. So he said he has high cholesterol, so he can't have anything oily. He's got very severe diabetes, he can't have anything sugary or syrupy. He's got hardened arteries, he can't have anything salty. 
and that the nurse looked at him and says, George! Actually, his name was, I think it was Ted. Ted! You're not going to die of anything to do with cholesterol. You're not going to die of hardened arteries or sugary things. You're going to die of cancer within a few days. You can eat whatever you want. And being a layperson who didn't know sense restraints, his eyes widened. You mean I can eat all these foods my wife would never let me eat? And the nurse said, yeah. So he really ordered all his favourite foods he hadn't had for years. You know what happened? He walked out of that hospice. He went into remission. I'm not saying that story just so you can indulge. You've got to be, you know, in a hospice with only a few days to live to practice this. But just the boost of happiness and joy, that was really important. That you know, got him another six months. But then when he went back to the hospice next time, he only got an extra six months. The cancer wasn't real remission, it was just subdued for a while. And I was with him when he was dying. And you all know my rules that I have to finish eating before midday. So we never knew when he was going to you know, breathe his last. It was getting 11 o'clock, 11.15. And so his daughter said, well, better get you something to eat, quick. And, uh, and the only thing they could get for me was some fast food, I think some chicken and chips. <laughs> she got some for herself. And it was just tradition. I know this, I think Venerable Chanda, you should know this as well, that if you have some chips, you always you know, ask, do you want a chip? You share them. So the daughter asked her dad, Dad, do you want a chip? And he said, yes, please. And that was his last words before he passed away. <laughs> I really started laughing when I heard that. The last words, crikey. <laughs> so if you're with me and I'm dying, what do you think my last, <laughs> last words would be? Those are awful chips. <laughs> I don't know what my last words would be. But anyway... Um, so actually, when you see death and dying, as long as you don't have any preferences on the outcomes, you not, don't want the person to get better, you don't want the person to pass away, you know that it's beyond you now. Your job is just to care for the patient, not to try and control the process. Then it can become a very, very beautiful experience. No suffering at all. Suffering in life every day, I say you choose to suffer. There's so much beauty and happiness here. Why can't people see that? A lot of times because we kind of been trained to be fault finders. That's what you get paid for at work. Find the faults and fix them. You get like a plumber or electrician. They're just going to find out why it doesn't work and fix it. You're a doctor, you know, you 
you can't breathe properly, fix it. So he just did the problems. And in the newspapers, if you look at the newspapers, it's all about the problems. That's one of the reasons why people get too negative, because they can't see the beautiful things in this world. See the people who... That's right, there was... One lady was asking me today that there was, in one of the local universities, Curtin University, I got a special place for Curtin University because they gave me this medal many years ago. But anyway, there was one student took a gun into the university and shot himself. And that's caused a lot of stress in that university. So I just asked her today, just how many students are there in Curtin University? Well, she's about 6,000. How many people didn't shoot themselves? 5,999. Why do we always focus on the one crooked brick and become blind to the 999 perfect bricks in a wall? We're fault finders. That's how we've been brought up and trained. That's how you've been trained by your mother or your father. You're not good enough. You're more than good enough. But all the good parts of you, they're taken for granted and ignored. And sometimes you believe that, you think you're not good enough. And you get stressed out. You are more than good enough. Why do you want to improve yourself? I reckon you're good enough. Dear Ajahn, whenever I have a conversation with people, my brain freezes and it ends up with a very awkward silence. Silence is never awkward. If you have a conversation with people and your brain freezes up, can you please teach me how to do that? There won't be awkward silence, people will leave me alone then, and I can have some nice peace. <laughs> I... What's this? I just don't know what to say in a conversation. Or just don't say anything. It's not important. I feel terribly sorry for the person who needs to deal with the awkwardness for me. No. Just, you have permission to be awkward. You know that these days we have a lot of understanding about people who are different. They may have autism, autism spectrum disorder, ADHD, why you should say ACDC. Sometimes I say that. But anyway, and there is an understanding, this is what people are like. So don't try and make them different. Learn how to be kind to them, accept them. LGBTQIA+. Don't try and feel awkward, because you're one of those and you don't know how to deal with other people. If other people feel awkward with you, fine. You have more peace in this world. 
So the problem is, though, and what I said and what they said keeps replaying in my mind, bugging my meditation. Please help. Oh, for goodness sake, what's in the past? doesn't matter how many times you think about that, that doesn't make it better. It just usually makes it worse. It makes you more tense the next time you go and speak to somebody. If you want to be silent, fine. You don't need to say things. A lot of times in our life, we do things because we feel we have to please others. A lot of people's life, ever since you were small, was pleasing others. And then you grow up and you're still pleasing others. You become a nun, you become a monk. I'm still pleasing others. We want to be an end to always pleasing others. So after a while, you just say what you need to say, and then whatever people like about it, don't like about it, it's up to them. The most important thing is to have that pleasing oneself by learning how to be at peace with oneself. Kindly explain present moment awareness. That was the answer. <laughs> do, thi- do things slowly and let go of the past and the future totally. All the past. Why do you insist on bringing it up? I used to have these great conversations with clinical psychiatrists and psychologists. These were people who had been to university. And they say the only way to get through some of the trauma of your past is keep reliving it, bring it up. I said, no, you can let it go, just like that. I had wonderful arguments with one of these uh, psychologists, psychiatrists, and eventually he gave in. He said, yes, it can be done. Isn't that wonderful? doesn't matter what happened in the past. You don't always have to be a prisoner of it and always being punished by it again and again and again and again. It gives this wonderful hope, but sometimes you think, no, no, I've got to keep thinking about it. No, you don't. Some of these things happened to you years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Why do you have to keep bringing it up? It's gone. You've grown, you've freed yourself from that. Otherwise, you've just got these big heavy rocks in a backpack. And the world is sometimes just like a big steep mountain covered in treacle. It's really hard, you have to sludge up it, trudge up it. It's very difficult, just trudging just with no weight on you. Imagine all this stuff you're carrying with you 
in the journey of your life. Can't you just put down that backpack? If you are just like a, a, a rowing boat, but you're carrying all these other boats behind you, just untie the knot. You just got your own boat to, to row, and that's enough. You don't have to. So please don't believe psychologists, psychiatrists who keep on telling you you can't let it go. You have to to deal with it. If you don't understand it, it will torment you for the rest of your life. No, it doesn't. Anyway, in mindfulness, bliss and beyond, you had repeatedly emphasized the need to build a foundation in the early stages of meditation, e.g. silent present moment awareness, and the careful patience is the fastest way. Good. How shall we reconcile this with a donkey-carrot-during approach? Or should we disregard the stages altogether? No, those stages are wonderful. But then, in the end, to get that last little bit of uh, letting go, to be able to um, get deep meditation or insight. Silent present moment awareness is great. But then, does it take you all the way? And sometimes the idea of, like, you've been working so hard on all your life. I don't know how many meditation retreats many of you have done. You've done silent present moment awareness, careful patience, you've done that. How come you're not all enlightened now? How come you keep coming back here? You know it's very difficult to get spaces on this retreat. Can't you just come this one time, get enlightened so you don't need to come back again, so more people from Singapore can come next time? So the same old people keep coming back year after year after year. That's why I look at you, and I know most of you. <laughs> seen you before. So the donkey carrot one is just a nice way of what happens when you do let go. You stop chasing things. It's strange that with somebody that, you know, you read some of the suttas, you read some of the Theragata and Terigata, and there's all these wonderful stories about these, like nuns, they were meditating, was it 13 years? They're getting nowhere. They didn't want to disrobe. They didn't really have much peace in their meditation either. And they always said that, what can I do because I don't want to disrobe. If I disrobe, I have to go back to the three crooked things. That was an idiom in the time of the Buddha in India. The three crooked f things which afflict a woman. You know what those are? The first crooked thing was the ladle. You know, housework. Cooking. The second crooked thing was the broom to sweep and clean up everything. And the third crooked thing 
the husband. <laughs> Had enough of a husband and cooking and cleaning. So I used to say that, so I don't want to do that. And then this special nun came along, teacher. They'd been meditating for years and getting nowhere. And she'd come along and give them some amazing teachings, and within a week they were all enlightened. Sometimes I kind of wondered, what are those teachings? Teachings of stop chasing the carrot. Stop. That's why one of my favorite stories was this um, novice monk. You know these little novices get ordained as monks? This was in northeast Thailand. And he gets ordained because his parents can't look after any more children or one of the parents dies or something. And so they get a, a lodging in a monastery and they get well fed. And this little novice was staying in Wat Pong and one night Ajahn Chah was giving a talk and it was one of the most boring of talks. It wasn't always inspiring. And sometimes we'd go on and on and on and on, just like me. <laughs> and anyway, this little novice, I don't know how old he was, 11 or 12, started thinking, when is Ajahn Chah going to stop? When's he going to stop? When's he going to stop? And that kept repeating inside of him. When's he going to stop? When's he going to stop? And the little novice decided to change it around a little bit. Instead of thinking, when is Ajahn Chah going to stop? The thought came into his mind, when am I going to stop? That's when he stopped. When he opened his eyes, it was morning time. He hadn't been asleep, been perfect meditation posture, just blissed out for hours. His first deep meditation. He had it actually stopped. And when all the monks had finished their, the Ajahn Chah had finished the talk and the monks had done their chanting, got up and just left. That's you know, always a bit noisy when people leave. He hadn't heard any of that. He'd missed the morning arms round and the, and the opportunity to have a meal. He didn't mind. He'd have lots of happiness after deep meditation. He stopped. Just like chasing the carrot, he stopped and a carrot came towards him. How many times have you been chasing things? Sometimes you can almost see it. It's right in front of you. Everything you ever wanted in your life is right there. You move towards it and it moves away from you. So frustrating sometimes. And then you decide to give up, stop, let go. You're chasing that all your life. And it comes towards you. That's how it works. Anyway. Dear Ajahn, I saw a dead kangaroo in the woods. What should I do? Sorry? Leave it there. Yeah, do nothing. And sometimes... It's, what day is it today? The 30th? 29th? No, 28th, isn't it? Okay. 
if that was in a couple of days' time, on the 31st, you saw a dead kangaroo in the forest on Halloween's night. <laughs> that might be interesting. So, dead kangaroo in the woods, it's best actually to leave it, and that's where it usually, uh, usually goes. If it was a bit earlier in the year, in August or July, we'd always check the pouch. If it was a female, there may be a little joey inside. I remember a few times that's happened. Uh, one of the cars hit a kangaroo on Kingsbury Drive, and one of the people saw it afterwards, and they looked inside the pouch, and there was a little joey inside, a little baby kangaroo, so we rescued it. And you know, there is people who know how to look after uh, baby joeys, uh, wildlife centres. So we called them up and they came along to rescue it, to actually to take it to a place where it could be properly cared for. The trouble was that one of the ladies staying here, she had it all wrapped up in a nice blanket and was cuddling it for about three or four hours before the wildlife people came and she didn't want to let it go. <laughs> she had this lovely, beautiful, cuddly joey, but of course, it won't survive with a human being. Anyway, next question. If no one asked already, this morning you mentioned the Buddha's great insights, Tewija, past lives, karma, I'm not sure you mentioned the third, the ending of the Aswas. I did, that's where just, you can see the Four Noble Truths and the cause of suffering. That's what causes you enlightened. If someone already asked, then please can you explain what happened to the jitta after Parinibbana? Some say the jitta never dies. Is it a question of semantics? No, the jitta doesn't die, it gets destroyed. It ends, finished, gone. That's how the Buddha described it. That's how these monks described it. It's, okay, this is one of the famous suttas which we chant very, very often, the Ratana Sutta. Kinang Puranang Nawang Nati Sambhavang. Destroyed is the past, Kinang Puranang. Nawang Nati Sambhavang. There's nothing new being constructed. Eckhart Tolle did not invent uh, present moment awareness. This was part of Buddhism from the very beginning. Kinang Puranang Nawang Nati Sambhavang. Virata Chit Ayati Kepawasming. Basically, the future of this mind has been destroyed. Nibanti Dira Yatayang Padipa. They have this word, Nibbana. It means like it's extinguished. The mind is going to be extinguished, just like a candle is extinguished on the shrine. That great teacher I mentioned a moment ago who was the cause of so many bhikkhunis becoming enlightened after they've been 
messing around for years, she was called Patachara. And Patachara became fully enlightened when she was with her eyes open watching a candle on the shrine. And the candle was extinguished. That's what Nibbana means. I mention this because even in the time of the Buddha, even kids would understand what Nibbana is. Mummy, the candle's been Nibbana'd. It was a word which everybody understood to describe a flame which had been extinguished. Do the flames die? Do you have to bear them afterwards? If it's been a very good flame, you know, it's allowed you to, to read and uh, to light the way. Does that flame, because of all the good karma it's done, go to heaven afterwards? It's been a bad flame and burnt you. Does it have to go to hell? It's a stupid answer, isn't it? Flames just are caused, and when those causes are extinguished, the flame is extinguished as well. That's what Nibbana means. It's not a question of semantics. It's just a question of people that desperately try to want to have what I call the ultimate retirement home for your mind after you become enlightened. They don't want to let go. We always want to keep something. Dear Ajahn Brah, my experience random bouts of anxiety in daily life. I also experience this anxiety in meditation at times. However, the difference is I can see the cause of anxiety being a passing thought or past stressful memory or worry about the uncertain future. I can feel my heart rate increase when this happens and focus on relaxing tension in the body and keep breathing. Would you have any advice on how to manage this anxiety? If it's in meditation and you feel anxiety, well done. I say well done because the reason I say that is because you're about to let go of something. You're about to become free. What happens when a person has been in jail for 20, 30, 40 years? And they, they say that in a day or two, you can become free, you can walk outside, you don't need to be in jail anymore. Would that prisoner feel elation or anxiety? Usually anxiety and fear. What you know, what you feel comfortable with is disappearing. Even though that people tell you outside of jail is far more pleasant than in jail, a lot of people would rather be in jail. Next question. That's why if you feel fear, it means you're challenging. You're challenging your safety blankets, becoming free. What happens in meditation? Sometimes you're just so close to getting into something like a jhana and the barrier of fear and anxiety comes up. It's a bit much for me. Even though people keep telling you it's a beautiful thing. But you're quite happier with some of your suffering. Next question. Is it possible to love and be infatuated with your partner 
and develop the necessary faculties to be a stream winner. You're making it much harder for yourself. I've got to be honest. Is it possible? I can't see how it is possible. But maybe, I'm not sure. But it's much better. Instead of being infatuated, what actually do you love about your partner? Can you actually say you love everything about her? You're that infatuated. Every part of you I love, my darling. Ajahn Chah used to tell stories about that. This monk I was with, Ajahn Chah turned around and through the translator he said, you're thinking of your girlfriend back in L.A. He was a novice monk. He said, yes, you busted me, I am. And Ajahn Chah said, I have a wonderful method of overcoming you know, the suffering you're experiencing. I think, he, I think Ajahn Chah read about this in some magazines or books. Ask your girlfriend in L.A. to send you something personal of hers. So when you miss her, you can get that out, look at it, to remind you. Is that allowed, what he said? Can I get like a little lock of her hair? Or maybe a piece of her dress with her scent on it? I can, when I feel lonely, I can take that out and remember her. And just say, yes. But don't get like a, a lock of her hair or a piece of a dress with scent on. Just get a little bottle, send it to her, and ask her to send you some of her shit. <laughs> I was looking, we haven't got much time. But I remember when Ajahn Chah said that, the translator, it took him about five or ten minutes to actually to get his act together to translate that. Isn't that the case, the people you love? Have you ever told him or her, I love everything about you? Everything? <laughs> so anyway, that's monk jokes. So, I can't actually see that. Love and infatuate. You can still have there's many different types of love. Instead of the infatuation love, the care love. This is like a, a, a close partner of yours. and You're going through life together. That type of love, which is not the infatuation, but the deeply understanding one another and helping one another out, that could be helpful for stream winner. My eyes keep wanting to close when I meditate is it absolutely necessary to keep them open? Of course not. Who told you that? <laughs> keep them closed. It's much easier when they're closed. You don't have to see people coming and going. Apparently, new research has shown that the elderly should be encouraged to talk more or have conversations with others. Crikey. <laughs> the trouble is when elderly people have conversations with others, they say... In the, they say the same old jokes and the same old stories again and again and again. <laughs> you should know that by now. <laughs> to stave off dementia, Alzheimer's, etc. Would silence be golden uh, for them in this case? Or if they can be silent, 
can be beautiful. When you're silent, your mindfulness increases. And when the mindfulness is strong, that's when the memory is strong. I kind of discovered this when I was even really young at school, primary school. Had a a little contest, like a a sort of little quiz, intelligence quiz. And each little part of the school, it was just an ordinary primary school, they had uh, different houses. I was in Greenhouse, I remember. And they just asked this question, and no one knew the answer, and only me. And the question was, what is uh, the name of a, a female duck? And I put my hand up, it's called Pen, P-E-N. And I said, right, correct. And I was the only one who knew the answer in this little school. I also remember when the teacher told me it. It was like when I was listening at school, I had a quiet mind, which meant I remembered things. That was really helpful. I teach that to kids at school. If you want to do well at school and you don't want to do much work, when people are talking, a teacher is talking, make your mind very quiet. Don't try to remember, just make it quiet. You're like a a sponge which soaks things up. If your sponge is wet, it doesn't soak much up. When it's really dry, it soaks everything up. So actually that when you are quiet, you remember much more. Elderly people are smart. There's many things which aren't worth remembering. They sift out all that useless rubbish. And just keep what is important. Is that correct? Who else here is over 70? Yeah. <laughs> How old are you now, too? You're 70? Over. Over, yeah. It's great being over. Because sometimes we even forget how old we are. (laughs) Excellent. Over 80? No, not yet, okay. It's around about the same age. Who else is over 70 here? (laughs) The teddy bear. Okay. So anyway, thank you for the questions today, this evening. Uh, Don't worry if there's more questions tomorrow. I won't answer them. (laughs) (laughs) You know why, because we're doing a ceremony tomorrow, end of the range retreat. But the next day, I will answer them as best we can. And if there are more questions, I will answer them more briefly. I try to sort of time it so it's just an hour or so. So it's now eight minutes past nine, it's not too late. So now, thank you for listening. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu.
Sadhu. Excellent. And if you like the format, wonderful, you can come and say how much you enjoy it to me. Any complaints, please go and see the manager. <laughs> <laughs>